I echo my gratitude for you, Kelsey. Thank you for your help in not just playing, but our organization. So thank you. <clears throat> Psalm 111. If you'll join me there, that would be great. Take your copy of God's Word and meet me in Psalm 111. This past week, our, our family was in the car headed to a school concert, a choir concert. And as we neared the concert location, I spotted an old van outside, you know, it's kind of along the street, and that old van sent me, I'm talking about straight down memory lane back in time. My parents owned a faded blue giant Chevrolet passenger slash delivery van with two bench seats in the middle, wall-to-wall shag carpet, a a, a sticker of the Holy Spirit dove right there above the rearview mirror. And, and in the back, this large section in the back, we kept two lawn chairs folded out so people riding with us could have extra spacious room. And <laughs> this is the vehicle in which I learned to drive. Nana? Right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Driving one time at night with my dad, and I don't know whether he was fearing for his life or potentially two passengers who were trying to comfortably sit in lawn chairs in the back. We were driving down a rural, remote highway, two-lane highway, no light, so it's a dark road. And my dad offered me a driving tip that I've never forgotten. In fact, it it, it did not remain just a driving tip, but one that has translated all these years later into another area of life. So this may give you a hint of what I was doing as a young driver. You know, you're driving that, that old country road, two-lane highway, and when headlights come to you, you don't mean to stare at them, but as you stare, you kind of find yourself kind of gradually getting closer and closer to those lights by just distinct human nature, I guess. He said to me, son... When a car is driving towards you in the opposite direction, don't stare at the headlights as they approach. Pretty calm, as I recall. Because if you do, you'll naturally find yourself drifting toward them. Instead, as cars approach, you want to be mindful of that car coming, glance over there occasionally, but focus on the solid painted line on the right side of the road so you won't drift. And so you'll remain safely on course. This morning we're going to turn our attention to a psalm that probably has not made your top ten list of psalms. But nonetheless, it is as helpful in the life of a Christian as a solid traffic line is in the learning process of a brand new driver. Psalm chapter 111 opens up with an exhortation, and we've sung about it all morning. It's an exhortation, praise the Lord, and it's followed directly from that with a personal example by the psalmist. And then after that exhortation and example, we read through a list of reasons why God is worthy of our praise. Psalm chapter 111 and Psalm chapter 112 are both twin psalms. In other words, they follow a similar, the same pattern. They're the exact same verses in 111 as there is in 110. 
And both of them are known as an acrostic psalm. In other words, the beginning letter of each line after the initial exhortation, which is praise the Lord, after that in each of them, it follows the Hebrew alphabet. And every line after that is uh, the beginning part of the line. And it's done so not as a cute literary device, but as a memory device, much as we have set a song to singing or a psalm to song, um, this was the case in Psalm 111 and 112. So the psalmists were encouraging the original recipients, the readers of that, remember these things, put these into practice, remember these things so that you may be one who puts it into practice. Psalm 111 does that. Psalm 112 we'll deal with another day. In fact, more than likely next week. For now, however, will you join me just silently as we study in praying that the words of this psalm will be written by God on our hearts so that we might be a people that fear the Lord, the end goal of verse 10, and Praise Him with our whole hearts. May it be so by God's grace. Let's read this psalm together. This is the word of the Lord, Psalm 111. It says, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Verse 9. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Just a quick read through of this psalm. You know who the subject is. Psalm chapter 111 focuses in on God. Period. Psalm chapter 112, the psalm's twin, focuses on God's people. So today there will be less about what we do in response to this as we receive this psalm as the memory device that it is intended to be so that it will fuel our praise, so that it will ignite our hearts of praise to the Lord, both when we gather to sing, not so much underlining and accentuating the demonstrative, 
but ensuring the integrity of heart from which we recognize the worthiness and praiseworthiness of God. That's what this psalm is aiming at. Psalm 111, our course of study this morning. Point number one of three points this morning is praise the Lord. Strictly comes straight from the text. Verse one, praise the Lord. As I've already told you, this psalm opens with this call. It opens with this exhortation. If you're a grammar nerd, which, which I frankly am not, I think I may be becoming one. Miss um, Sandra Collins would be very happy about that, my eighth grade English teacher, which probably, I, I probably increased her prayer life in middle school, just to be honest. But um, no doubt, you may appreciate the fact that the verb in this opening line is a transitive verb. That may enrich your life for the rest of your life. The reason I bring it up is the significance of a transitive verb is that it, it requires a direct object in order for the verb to make sense. And that's important to us in this setting and in Psalm chapter 111 and 112 because the object of our praise is God. We do not gather to experience worship or praise. We gather to worship God. And frankly, our, our style of music has never been important to us at Redeemer, even in the year or two leading up to it. What has been important to us is that we, we, we guard the integrity of what we're singing, and by God's grace, we hope that the words that we sing from our mouths are starting from hearts that love Jesus and give us opportunity to repeat back to Him in praise form what is true about Him. It's never been about, nor Lord willing, will it ever be about an experience of worship as if that's not an abnormality, right? The object of our worship is God. It is not about an experience of worship or praise. So the psalmist Building upon that, he provides his readers with this exhortation and then his own personal practice. It, if you will, he, he offers a precept and then follows it up with his practice. Notice what he says. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So they were, and we are being instructed here, of the joy, the beauty, and the benefit of offering praise to the Lord when we gather. But worship and praising God is not limited to the corporate or the congregational gathering, right? So I say that only to say that we don't worship and praise just when we gather together. But when we gather together, it is for the express purpose of lifting high the name of Jesus in our praise, enthusiastically from whole hearts. I will give thanks to the Lord, the psalmist writes, with my whole heart. I must say that our hearts and our minds, even as Brent prayed in his prayer, our hearts and our minds are prone to distraction. And we are bombarded by competing affections for our heart. Competing loyalties for our heart. William Plummer back in the 1890s wrote a commentary on Psalms which 
frankly, I would commend to you if it weren't so big and thick and heavy, but it has just been, it's been a delightful thing to read. And he says um, this, it is no easy matter for us to avoid cold affections when we gather to worship. Being translated, it may, he's, he's saying this, Listen, it requires our whole heart and our mind's focus when we gather, in spite of our circumstances and weeks, to fix our hearts solely on the Lord. That's what the Word does. That's what our prayer times are doing. And that's what our our efforts and and utterances of praise before Him seek to do. So if, if He's right in His testimony and writing, and I believe He is, that it's no easy matter for us to avoid cold affections for Christ when we gather to worship, How do we avoid those cold affections? How do we avoid the ho-hum expressions of praise to our God in worship? Well, we combat cold affections by by practicing what this psalm instructs instructs us by delighting in God. By delighting in Jesus and, and giving thanks to Him with our whole hearts in the midst of And in some situations, in spite of every circumstance. I don't know if you're familiar with Bill Bright, but he was the founder of Campus Crusade. And he died a pretty painful death um, through the kind of wrestling match of last stages of cancer. And on his deathbed, his wife would report that he would be interacting with family members in that close circle of friends that might would have been around his bedtime at his, in his final moments. And he would be overtaken by the pain of what was going on inside his body. And in the midst of, I don't want to paint a picture that I'm not 100% certain about, but in the midst of his grimaces of discomfort and pain, his wife reports um, that he would just say, Praise. The word, praise. And from that word, he would say, praise you, Father. And somehow in, and it was by God's grace, in the midst of his circumstance and pain, he was able to articulate praise to the one who actually, that he would come face to face with very soon. So our circumstances do not order or dictate the praiseworthiness of Jesus. But as we delight ourselves in God and in Christ, giving thanks to Him from whole hearts, we combat cold affections by delighting in Him. This is the importance and one of the reasons why we purchased these to give to the guys and purchased these books, What is the Gospel, to give to folks who are coming and checking out our church, who haven't had the opportunity to to hear why we believe so strongly in gospel culture and gospel... um, teaching and and biblical teaching as we gather, because keeping a gospel-saturated perspective enables us to see and to trust the hand of God in the midst of the most challenging predicaments or seasons of our lives. And they're ever-present, aren't they? The psalmist goes on to say, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Isn't it a joy to celebrate that the church is a body that is made up of people who have a common bond of faith in Jesus? 
all different backgrounds, all different circumstances. And I believe Bill might have said last week and a little, he touched on it a little bit even this morning, how when we're praying and when we're singing, we're joining people from all over the world who are doing the same thing. So we all come from different backgrounds. But when we're in this room, gathered as Redeemer Fellowship, um, we are a body that's made up of people who have a common bond of faith in Christ. We embrace the gospel. So one aspect of our congregational gathering is the obligation. And not just the obligation, but the pleasure to confess God and His greatness before and alongside each other in spite of the weeks we've had leading up to our service. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I come in here and I need, I need to hear the voices of my brothers and sisters singing, not over me, but around me. Because it is, it is helpful to my soul and heart to reorient my perspective and heart toward the praiseworthy Jesus that I'm hearing y'all sing about. And I'm cognizant of some of your weeks. Yet you sing. Thus the psalmist, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. The heart of the psalm, verses 2 through 9, provide us with the reasons to praise God. None of which I will spend a lot of time addressing, but all of it I want to touch upon. Um, I think most of these will be relatively obvious for you as you see what he is trying to do um, as he presented to them. So let's, let's look at three things. His works, his word, and his name. We'll find them all throughout here, beginning with verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in Him. God's works are great. From His creative voice, to His parting of the waters, to His release of the people from the Egyptian um, tyranny and slavery. Through Christ, through the feeding of 5,000, being touched on the hem of His garment by a bleeding woman to His resurrection from the dead. His works are great. And as we study them, as we seek them out, as we, as the song sang, that we, as the song listed this morning, as we ponder anew, they reveal His power and His character. The works of His hand are pondered, they are studied, they are sought out by those that love God. Because they're not only awe-inspiring, again, they, His works, they orient our hearts toward Him and lead us to live with a trembling trust before Him. All of this chapter is leading us to verse 10, which is what a life of praise leads us to. Not uninformed praise, but praise of the One through His Word. The things that God has done, His work, as we see that word all throughout the psalm, or His works, as we see all throughout the psalm, they inform us and inform our perception of who He is. To study and ponder anew and seek after the works of His hand 
is not just for the sake of seeing what he could do, but it, it informs us of who he is. And it fuels and ignites our praise to him. Thus, verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work. And his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Because God knows that a human life oriented to pray, the praise of His glory results in a life of wisdom and understanding. Again, verse 10. He has demonstrated His grace and His mercy even in causing His works to be remembered by His people. Do you think of memorials that are established to remind God's people of His mighty hand as being an act of His grace and mercy? Well, it is because we need to remember. That's why all throughout the Scripture we're, we're encouraged, remember. And it's, it's typically, as we're reading the Old Testament, remember the deliverance from Egypt. That is the monumental picture of the Old Testament that points us to a greater exodus. Right? If you're a C.S. Lewis fan and Chronicles of Narnia fan, maybe you've made your way through the silver chair. The silver chair begins with two newcomers to the scene. One newcomer, Jill, and, and they are trying to escape the pressures of being bullied in their homeland and find themselves entering into a space that's not their land. And they're not quite into Narnia when they open that door and enter in, but they're on the outskirts of Narnia. They would get there eventually. But before they do, she encounters Aslan. And Aslan fuels her with four signs, four things to remember. And he, he instructs her of what the signs are, and he instructs her of the need for her to remember it, to go over it in her head, to go over it at night. So when she encounters the need in life where she'll have to pull up the content of those signs, they will walk through without, without trouble. And they don't do that exactly well, right? There's a lot of bumps along the road. Although she set it to memory at the beginning, she's pretty distracted like us. Weak in the flesh. And prone to drift and wander. God's people need His help to remember who He is. And remember, more importantly, or equally important, who we are not. We are not God. In the act of praise, I will praise, I will give thanks to the Lord by my whole heart. Praise the Lord. The act of praise even reorients us in that. That it is a verbal demonstration and expression, especially if it's from our whole heart, that He is God and we are not. And that is our act of worship. Without a doubt, it was God's patience, His grace, and His mercy, all of which come from this text of verse 3, that led Him to establish the memorial feast of the Passover to help His people remember His faithfulness throughout the years. 
not in general, but specifically. Follow along as I read verses 5 through 6, noting the specific works of God that the Passover would have encouraged the children of Israel to remember. Verse 5, He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. What would these things that I've just read about be prompting them to remember with an aim to move them to praise? Well, think about it. God had provided manna in the desert. And unchangeable, He is still God. And He is still our benevolent provider. God had followed through with His covenant promise. And unchangeable, There's not an aspect of His covenant He has failed to bring to fruition. We can trust Him as the source of truth and the keeper of His Word. God had performed mighty miracles, or what our text says is the power of His works before Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Think plagues, right? Think the parting of the Red Sea, which they saw, that led to their release and freedom. Draw it to today unchangeable. God has not lost an iota of His almighty power and His strength. We can rest, you can rest, in His sovereign power over all things, including our ever-changing circumstances. Final thing here is God followed through with His Word. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. God followed through with His Word by providing the inheritance of the nations to His children. What does that mean? Well, when they eventually occupied the promised land, it was in fulfillment of His promise for this space. Whereas Moses and Joshua led the people to a land in which they were to dwell, We praise the Lord now that He has come, Jesus has, and made the hearts of the redeemed His place to dwell. So yes, the feast provided the people with an annual recounting of God's faithfulness in His mighty hand. And His Word does the same. And His Word gets put on display next. Look at verses 7-8 through where we see His Word. Because here the psalmist holds up his word as one more reason that God is worthy of our lifestyle of praise. He does this by pointing out, and I want to point this out. He points out one thing in general, and he points out three things in particular. First, the one thing in general. Notice verse 7. It doesn't appear to be speaking about the word. Verse 7 begins with this, the works of His hands are faithful and just. And then it goes into this line, all His precepts are trustworthy. It's important for us to catch the harmony. And that is indeed what this is. A harmony between what God does, His work and His works, and what He says. Thus, the psalmist mentions His works here in verse 7 in conjunction with His precepts or His word. 
God's works always agree with His promises and engagements. That's why we are to steal ourselves in His Word. That's why we are to meditate on His Word day and night. That's why we hide His Word in our hearts. That's why it is a trustworthy source enabling us to keep our paths straight by God's grace. That's one thing in general. Let me show you, point out these three things. In particular, you'll see them pretty clearly here. The first comes in the second part of B. I've already read it, but let me point it out because God's Word is reliable. I want you to see that. God's Word is reliable. The text says this, all His precepts are trustworthy. Some of your versions may say, use the word sure, S-U-R-E. Of this word, C.S. Lewis explained that found within the Hebrew sense of this word sure means it holds water in every situation and circumstance. That's what God's Word does. It won't give way or collapse. Shannon and I are committed to the World War III that is the annihilation of poison ivy in our yard. So far it's winning, but we, we stand committed to the task. And, and I, I bought a gallon of poison ivy killer that is in concentrate. I took a red Solo cup and I marked on the cup where I'm supposed to measure the concentrate of poison ivy killer to then be added to a gallon of water. That was an easy thing to do. I poured it in there, mixed it with the water, put the sprayer, and then went in and did battle for the first round. Because I had to leave right after that, I threw the Dixie cup or the little Solo cup in the box that holds the sprayer. I stuck the, the sprayer back in the box just for safekeeping. This weekend, I went to apply the second application of said poison ivy killer to the grass or the yard. Poison ivy. Much to my surprise, when I pulled that thing out, I realized the veracity of this uh, fluid because I picked up my Dixie cup measuring or my Solo cup measuring cup and it had disintegrated and was no longer a viable cup. It could no longer hold water. It no longer had integrity. And because I've been thinking about this chapter, I, I'm holding this solo cup in my hand and say, huh, praise the Lord that your word never falls prey to the shifting shadows of life. Yet they are trustworthy. They are sure. They can withstand the pressures of whatever hits it. God's word is reliable. Second thing that we see here is God's word is eternal. Notice what the passage says. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. As I've tried to point out already, and his word confirms, the Lord is of one mind and he does not change. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. The psalmist provides us one more thing to remind us of the praiseworthy nature of God, and that's His name. Look at verse 9. He sent, his, he sent redemption to His people. 
He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. One commentator about this writes, His name says all He wants His people to know about Him. He delights in bestowing unmerited grace and is stirred by emotional affection for them. Verse 9 illustrated this for its original readers by directing their attention again back to Egypt and how God delivered them. He redeemed them from slavery. Today, I know you see this, but hear it one more time. We praise His holy and awesome name. That's the words of the text. Having experienced a greater exodus and the new covenant. Holy and awesome is His name. I want to touch upon this word awesome before we go into verse 10 in our last point. Because in our common language, we use the word awesome as a superlative to allude to something's, and, and let me make up a word here, spectacularness. That was awesome. Or its greatness. However, the word in the Psalms means to revere. It, it actually is used in Habakkuk to mean terrible. We should be careful not to put a modern spin on our understanding of this word, awesome. His name is holy. And by that, the Scripture's meaning, He is altogether pure, and He is altogether other. He has no equal, He has no rivals. And likewise, as it relates to His name being awesome, it's this. He is to be revered with deeply satisfying trembling and submission before Him. And the expression of that trembling is praise. He is worthy. This posture, this is why we sing when we gather. This is why we sing the words that we sing when we gather. Because it fosters a posture, and this posture is becoming of the believer who gives thanks to the Lord with his or her whole heart, in the company of the upright, us, congregation. It is the way of wisdom. It is the way of understanding. As the psalmist says in his closing verse, Psalm 10, Psalm 111, 10, final point, fear the Lord, and all I will do is read the verse for us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. May the words of this psalm be written on our hearts. And may the expressions of our whole hearts be praise to the one whose works and work identify his character and put it on full display. His grace and mercy to help us remember His goodness and His power and work is yet one more example of grace that He has for us because He knows that lives of wholehearted praise from His purchased people leads to the benefit of verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is sure. It holds water. This morning it has pointed and revealed to us your praiseworthiness, your faithfulness, your goodness. So in response to what we have read and studied, Lord, would you write it on our hearts and foster in us individually hearts of humble praise to you and a willingness, a desire, deep affections, warm affections of people who long after you. Seek out your works and foster in us, Lord, as a result, hearts of praise to you that we might be people who are not only purchased by your blood, but also people who enjoy you deeply and serve you humbly, and fear you reverently. In Jesus' name, amen.